All right. To our car crowd. Good to hear from you, too. So we are back, continuing our series, The Call of the King. And uh, we have been talking about the question of what kind of priority are we giving Jesus Christ in our lives? And so this is a question we all need to ask on a personal level, uh, as a community as well, but especially on a personal level. Am I just a fan of Jesus? Or am I actually trying, as a follower, to obey with heart, mind, soul, and strength? So we're going to wrap up this series in this next week or two, and uh, we're going to transition into a new series called uh, just uh, the content of what Jesus talked a whole lot about, the kingdom of God. So we're going to be spending a lot of time in uh, our four Gospels. And I think uh, talking about the kingdom of God, it, it fits hand in glove with what we've been doing in this service, the call of the king, uh, because content-wise, we've talked about the goodness of Jesus' person, we've talked about the goodness of what he calls us to, but content-wise, what he talked about the most was the kingdom of God. Uh, how do you enter into the kingdom of God? When can you enter into the kingdom of God? How do you live from the power and resources of the kingdom of God? So we're going to be exploring some of those things together. I'm looking forward to that. But this week we have a different question to consider. So we've been talking a lot about, okay, the goodness. We talked about the games we play, the excuses we come up. We talk about the goodness of his call, the goodness of his person. So say someone in this room is actually to a point where you said, okay, Lord, I'm going to change and I'm going to do some things different, and I'm going to take this more serious, and I'm going to take next steps. Uh, if you really wanted to take King Jesus' calling more seriously, what do you need to do, and what steps do you need to take? I don't know what happened to my beautiful slides, but uh, they got ugly on me. It doesn't bode well for what's coming, so I don't know. If you were to take your calling more seriously, what are the next steps that you would need to take? So I'm going to talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, and this is a hard one for me, because a lot of times we think we want change, but we really don't want change. Uh, now, it's maybe a little bit... Uh, naive on my part to think that a sermon or even a series of sermons could uh, uh, reach a person at a level where you actually want to do something about it. Um, because you're used to hearing me, and you don't honor me by listening to what I say, actually, as far as obeying it and making changes in your life. And because uh, that's a hard thing. Change is a hard thing. And so, I think maybe in this room, if it's just a handful, even if it's the hope of a handful, a hope, uh, for me it's worth it if a single person moved to a place where they came to the Lord Jesus and said, I want you to be Lord in truth and made steps to do it. 
There might be a hundred people in this room. If we had one, I would be surprised. If I was that one, I would be surprised. I don't know. I would love for there to be a hundred. But what would it take for you to take a next step? Some of us go through our Christian life and we just, we've said the right things, we've done the right things, we come, we put the money here, we, we take the juice, we, have, we smile, we shake hands. There's more to it than that. Some of us have been a place of stagnation for a very long time, just going through the motions. But there will be a time when you're ready for something more. So what I try to do is may we have words that are out there that they sit in our minds and our hearts somehow that when, our, then when the Spirit breaks our hearts that we really get to a point where I want to take this more serious, those words can maybe seep down and we can begin to take steps of action to actually change. So what does it look like if I'm going to take this... this uh, faith in Jesus more seriously. Uh, the problem we have, including is myself, is that we say we want to change, but really what I want is not change because change is hard. Really, what change entails is it means I can't keep up with business as usual. I need to go for more than business as usual. And the problem is we're very comfortable with business as usual. We're comfortable with our habits that we have in place for good or for ill, and the thought of re-examining them and trying new things, uh, we have to be pretty uncomfortable or pretty dedicated before we begin to actually take steps along those lines. So you could say, do you want change? Yeah, I want change. Most people, they don't really want change. What they want is relief. You want relief from your loneliness. You want relief from your stress. You want relief from the anxiety you feel. You want relief that suddenly your life management strategies that you have, apart from God, that they'll just suddenly start working with your relationships, with your wealth, with your resources, uh, with just how you feel about yourself, how you feel about others. We don't want change. We want what we're doing to suddenly start working. Because self-rule, in the end, it is, I think, the worst form of tyranny out there. But what if there's a handful of us that really wanted to do something about the way we're living to become more like Jesus Christ? What if? And if it's not now, what if it was later on? What would you need to do? What steps would you need to take? And that's what this sermon is about. And I think... The answer to that is we have to become simple. And that's what this sermon is based on today. I'm not talking about, oh, Calvin, he's such a simpleton or whatever. I am a simpleton in a lot of ways. Uh, it's simplicity in the form of single-mindedness and commitment. Simple in that we have removed distractions and I focus instead uh, concretely on uh, my one true thing. So uh, 
It's what the writer to the Hebrew Scriptures talks about when he says, uh, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We get rid of anything that would get in the way of that. And that's not an easy thing for us. Uh, so, uh, in talking about simplicity, I'm referring again to a teacher of mine, Chris Hall, in his foundation series, because I found the questions he asked to be particularly helpful and relevant. Uh, the truth is, a lot of times, we focus on the wrong things. We have our one thing, but the other things seem to pull our attention. We get turned aside to less important issues so many times. We worry about the approval of other people. So in essence, we remove King Jesus from his place as number one in our lives. And uh, we begin to worry about and think about what does so-and-so think? How does so-and-so see this? What is... And this is just one way we move away from simplicity. Simplicity is letting go of double-mindedness. Simplicity is letting go of split allegiances. It is the cure to apathy. It is a cure to indifference. So John Ortberg, an author, he wrote in a book of his, I think it was called The Life That You've Always Wanted to Live. Okay, I got the old clicker, which doesn't work. There it goes. Probably Laura is saving my bacon right now. I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened to the slides that they, they did this. Why is it that we often respond so strongly to criticism? Our response to criticism reveals a secret addiction in many of us. And what I refer, I refer to what might be called approval addiction. Some people live in bondage to what other people think of them. I read that, and I'm like, ooh, that hurts a little bit. That hurts a little bit. Uh, so uh, how do you find yourself responding to someone when they criticize you? When someone's critic, I mean, regardless of whether it's founded or unfounded, or what does that do to you? For me, there's churning there and uh, work sometimes to hold my tongue, work to weigh out the truth of this, not to respond immediately. And or when you hear that someone has been critical of you, around the rumor mill, it's come around. So-and-so doesn't like what you're doing with your preaching with this, or what kind of a response in you does that elicit? Uh, some people live in bondage to what other people think about them. And one of the reasons that simplicity is so important for us is if you have a oneness of focus, it leads to freedom in that regard. Am I addicted to what other people think of me? Do I dress in light of what other people might think of me? I dress like my dad today, and I didn't even know it. Do I choose my words based on the impression they make on another person? So some, some questions we should ask about approval addiction. 
Number one, if we find ourselves often getting hurt by what other people say about us, by people expressing anything but glowing opinions about us, we may have approval addiction. If we habitually compare ourselves with other people, if we find ourselves getting competitive in the most ordinary situations, we probably have it. If we live with a nagging sense that we are not important enough or special enough, or we get envious of another success, you may have approval addiction. Finally, if we keep trying to impress important people, we probably have it. Those opinions that we're chasing after, those positive words of affirmation. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but when God gets taken out of his place as being our one thing, uh, that's when it becomes a problem. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be free of people's expectations in this sense? That we really can weigh people's criticism uh, without all of our own baggage and our own brokenness and our own lenses distorting that and out, without assuming uh, that they're speaking out of all of their own brokenness and which many cases they are and uh, justified or not, wouldn't it be nice to be free of this on some level? Uh, of constantly seeking approval so that our life is somehow validated. So I need to read a few words from us from the Sermon on the Mount. So any study of simplicity, uh, you've got to go right to Matthew chapter 6. And so I'm going to read these words from verse 19 through 34. And uh, I just want you to listen to them. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. Matthew chapter 6, 19 through 34. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in, steal, uh, in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be filled with darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? 
So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Laura, do you mind? Thank you. 633 is at the heart of simplicity. And this is the key that it all hinges on. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. So the things that Jesus talks about, the other things after seeking the kingdom of God first, the kingdom of heaven first, are all the kinds of things that we tend to focus on and tend to be anxious about, are they not? And it's funny, uh, the list is incredibly relevant then. It's just as relevant in our day and age. Uh, Anxious about money, anxious about food and having comfort, anxious about um, what we have to wear, anxious about what other people might think about us or say about us because it might affect my ability to have this or get this. Or, And Jesus says, don't worry about it. No sweat. Don't worry about it. Is that easy for you? It's not easy for me, and I've been at this for a while. No sweat. And Jesus doesn't say, I, I'm going to give you a million dollars. I'm going to make you rich beyond your wildest dreams. You will be the one who dies with the most toys. He doesn't say that. He says, I'll give you what you need. I will give you what you need. Uh, Theologian Soren Kierkegaard famously said, purity of heart. Purity of heart is to will one thing. One thing. One thing at the center. Undivided. Simple. One thing. And for him... It was, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his kind of righteousness. And everything else will take care of itself. Simplicity is a matter of allegiance. What is at the heart and core of who you are as a person? What is your life about? What is your life about? What is the center of your being? And uh, one of the reasons why money is so tied to the discipline of simplicity, how we use our money, what we spend our money on, uh, what money we give away, and so on, it's very closely related to what our life is about and our understanding of what our life is about shows up in the way that we use resources like money. And uh, that's why Jesus doesn't mince words with this. You cannot serve two masters. He doesn't say, I won't let you, or it's not a good idea. He says, you can't do it. You can't have two gods. 
And the problem is we all try to have our cake and eat it too. Isn't that not true? We try to hedge our bets. We hold our hearts back on some level. And that's part of our sanctification, our growth in Christ-likeness, is beginning to step out and in truth have the kingdom of God and his righteousness as our number one. And we got to be real about it, and you got to get ruthless about eliminating anything that's going to get in the way of that. And it's hard. All right. So the discipline or of simplicity, another good verse to look at is Luke chapter 12, if you have a Bible. Luke 12, I'm going to read the parable of the rich fool from verse 13 through 21 of Luke 12. Again, you can just listen to me on this. All right. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out! Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. And he told them a parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. That's the American dream right there, if I ever heard it. Take it easy. You've done your part. No sweat anymore. We're going to live off other people's sweat while I eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. So the parable of the rich fool, the operative verse that we need to pay attention to there. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. The abundance of their possessions. Uh, so I like my uh, teacher's quote on this. The purpose and abundance of our life is determined by how well we love. How well we love. And if you don't have that part, that love part, uh, to the extent you have that, you have a good life, a life that has been worth living. So a duplicitous person is someone who is trying to have their cake and eat it too, and I'm not saying that we don't have to learn how to be stewards and deal with resources and wealth. That is a godly work as well. But a duplicitous person is, in a sense, a spiritual chameleon uh, whose colors change depending on the group of people they are with or in the circumstances or environment that they are in. A duplicitous person is different in different settings. 
uh, and duplicity really is the antonym of simplicity. Uh, We all try to portray simplicity, and we want everyone to think that the kingdom is at the core of our being. Uh, But we play games with this, and uh, when it is not there in truth, it shows in our actions. So a woman of simplicity, a godly woman of simplicity, she has placed the kingdom of God at the core of her being. And the kingdom of God is her one thing that will determine all of her yeses and all of her noes. All of her yeses, what she agrees to, all of the things she refuses and says no to, it all goes through the simplicity of that one thing. The kingdom of God and seeking his righteousness. Simplicity in that sense is so powerful because it gives us a place where we can stand. So whenever you talk about simplicity, the, you're talking about simplicity on two levels, the internal and the external. Uh, and one is harder than the other, and one flows into the other. Uh, two forms of simplicity, internal, external. So internal simplicity would be seeking the kingdom first as the fundamental reality of my heart. What makes Calvin Gruen's heart beat? The righteousness of God and seeking his kingdom. So, uh, internal simplicity centers on that question, to whom or to what are you willing to give your allegiance? What's your number one? And then external simplicity flows out of this reality. External simplicity uh, would be like uh, your possessions that you have, Um, the toys, the stuff, So external simplicity, because of the internal reality, if it's there or it's not there, it'll show up in your finances. It'll show up in your thinking, how much you think about and obsess about wealth. Uh, Too much, not enough, just right. How generous you are with other people, so on and so forth. Uh, The external is always rooted in the internal reality of our heart. And that's why Jesus is so ruthless in demanding the total allegiance of our heart. is because always the external is going to flow out of the reality of what's really going on inside. Um, Jesus had a way that he talked about this as well. He says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. By their fruit, you will recognize them. What does Jesus mean? Well, a person might have a lot to say about what they believe, and they have an image that they put forth, and they have lots of words and stories to... But you'll be able to tell what they believe by, what they, by how they behave. It always shows up. The external is always going to mirror the internal reality. Does that make sense? And that's why it's, it's all about heart change. You can try to make external simplicity changes, and that'll good, that's a good thing, and that might help you obtain the internal reality. But if the internal reality is not there, it's going to be a hard go. And eventually, it'll show up in your behavior. Eventually, it will. Whether we're talking about greed or any kind of vice, our lust, uh, envy, 
anger, the heart is always going to find a way to express itself if that reality is in the internal. Okay, let me say a word about focusing on and revealing the tyranny of self-rule. Hello, Lord, I'm trying to preach here. (laughs) Revealing the tyranny of self-rule. Am I pretending to be an expert where I'm only an amateur? That's a good one for preachers. This is another good one for preachers, too. Do I really read the books I quote? We get a little Cliff Notes information on some topic. That's great. I can use that to impress someone. If I memorize these words, if I can show them how smart I am, oh, this is gold. I can use that. Number three, do I give the impression of being more godly or more profane than I really am? That's kind of interesting. Again, the, the idea of duplicity. Trying to manage this image and an identity. I've got my life together. I don't need to help with any of my problems. I don't want to talk about them. I don't need to confess anything. I've got this. Thank you very much. And so many people are carrying these burdens that we don't feel safe sharing because we think, well, so-and-so, they have it all put together. If they really knew how messy my life was. And, and so we're all wearing this mask. We're managing this image. And we do that on the other extreme as well. When I'm with my buddies out at a bar and the language they use, do I just slide right into that as well? I don't know what your, what your environments are or what they look like. Sometimes we pretend to be more profane than we really are. It's all about this pretending and this image management that will betray approval addiction. It will betray your heart as being duplicitous. And this is a really good one. This one's from Richard Foster. Instead of becoming good, we resort to all kinds of devices to make people think that we are good. That is the world we live in today. We all want to be thought of as good. I want to have the reputation. I want to be thought of a certain way. I'm going to do my best to craft and manipulate and get the PR campaign going so people will think that I'm this way. And we'll spend an awful lot of energy trying to portray ourselves a certain way rather than just becoming the reality of it. So simplicity leads to freedom from the self and really relieves us of the burden of playing the image management game. That is the gift of simplicity. And that's why it needs to be at the core of our spiritual and and real-life transformation. Simplicity also leads not just from the freedom of uh, self, but it leads to freedom from things, freedom from ostentatious living, freedom from... uh, buying certain things because of the impression that they might make on other people, the status, the name brand, the image. So some questions we need to ask in this regard. Do you live within your income? Number two, am I a compulsive buyer? 
I just got to have this because of the way it makes me feel and the way it looks on me. And then, Can I buy what I can afford? Or what my responsibility, the poor, also suggests is appropriate? And just to put this a little further, you know, people manage an image on the other thing as well. Like, I would like this thing because it's quality and it's not going to break right away and it's really useful, but it has a certain status. And I don't buy, I'm not going to buy this because what will people say? What will people think if the preacher drives a Tesla? I'm still working on that one. So if you want to do a study along these lines, uh, I, I'm going to recommend two books for us. So this is a really good one. Uh, Ronald Sider, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. It asks such hard questions, but it's so good. And uh, uh, it helps us consider this whole idea of our one thing and what does that look like? And especially this question about what is my responsibility uh, to other people around me? And really what we're invited to is to move past a, a mentality that's kind of like all poor people are that way because they're lazy. You know how much I hear stuff like that? They're... You made your bed, lie in it. Or all homeless people are drug addicts. Or it's a lifestyle choice. Or, and we use those kind of things to just let ourselves off the hook. And we let ourselves off the hook so easily, so quickly. Uh, what do you have that you did not receive? Let me tell you a story. Here's a good story. So, suppose I'm a farmer. Oh, that's better yet. Let's get a real farmer from it. Brett. Brett is a farmer, kind of. Have you seen what he's got going out in that garden out there? So there's a farmer, and he goes to move a pile of dirt on his property. And he's just got a shovel, and he wants to move it a little ways, and he's got to walk a little ways with it, but he's got plenty of time. He's just going to go about it. So the farmer goes to his pile of dirt. He gets that pile of dirt, and he picks it up. He starts walking with that shovel load of dirt. And he's walking to where he wants to go. He comes over here, and he dumps that pile of dirt. Well, in that shovel load of dirt, there were two worms. And one of those worms falls out onto a crack in a sidewalk. And as he walks a little further on, the second worm falls out into a dead cat. You're really wondering, where in the world is he going with this right now? So the first worm is in that crack on the cement. The sun is beating down. It's hot. That little worm is struggling to survive finally works himself out of that and is just kind of like shriveling up. Things have been so hard. And finally he comes to where that second worm was in that dead cat. And he sees that second worm. That second worm is fat, is moist, is healthy, plenty of things to eat. 
And so that little skinny, dried-out worm says to the fat worm, to what do you attribute the secret of your success? And the fat worm says three things, my good looks, my cunning, and my work ethic. (laughs) What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? That's a question of simplicity. Because you get that right, can lead to humility, and it can lead to a place of stewarding what we have been entrusted with a whole lot better. Now, a lot of times, Christians in history have glorified a give-it-all-away attitude. A Francis of Assisi, I don't want nothing from anyone that they can't claim that I got this from them, that I didn't get this or I did this uh, by anyone except what God gives me. Uh, So Francis of Assisi, he's from a wealthy family, a story, he goes and he just strips down, naked, walks away, leaves his inheritance, leaves the family fortune, and he just goes and he begs. And and so that's a, in its own way, I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I, I don't think it's practical for most people, but that serves as an example and a corrective. But so many times in the church, we've really glorified, you can't have anything. And if you're really godly, then you give it all away. And we haven't done good lip service and really talked about, you know, what a beautiful thing it is to be so responsible with your resources that they produce income that over time, not just a big one-time show about, look what I've done, but over year after year after year after year, you have been responsible enough that you get to bless the Lord's work and to bless the Lord's people and push. Because just because you have resources and you were to give them all away, those resources don't stop existing. They're just under someone else's stewardship. A lot of times under the stewardship that does, of someone who doesn't have the kingdom of God at the core of their being and doesn't want uh, to put Christ as Lord. So I think simplicity also needs to look at how are we responsible. Simplicity also has a question about uh, quality and getting quality things that are going to last a long time. Uh, there's a level of simplicity that deals with that as well. Everything you have away and go live as a monk somewhere or whatever, as much as I like monks. Simplicity, ask harder questions than that. So Dylan, you can come forward. So the invitation I have, uh, a couple invitations. First one, uh, this is the really a book that I would suggest looking at if you want to get serious about purity of heart is to will one thing. To, to ruthlessly look at ways of becoming simple and willing one thing, of just Christ l- becoming uh, focused, laser-focused, laser-guided missile-focused on the... On, 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 um, Seeking First the Kingdom of God and His Righteousness. Richard Foster, this whole book, I just got it on audiobook. I listen to this every now and again. 
And it always convicts me every time I listen to it, but it's great material. And I think it's worthwhile uh, helping us ask these kind of questions. So if you're going to get serious about change, you got to get simple. That's this first, this first one I'm going to give you there. So uh, as I said, we'll be wrapping up in the next couple weeks. Of course, uh, the invitation that we, uh, that we always offer, if you want to put the Lord on a baptism, we can do that. Uh, if you need the prayers of this church or would like to share something uh, w- uh, with the congregation, as we stand and sing this song, you can come up and let me know that. So let's stand and sing.